Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi Marjorie. Hey Claire, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. We're in June. I know, it's summer. Although I feel like June for me is much more summer than you guys get here because we schools always broke up at the end of May in the States. So we got the full three months of June. Feels like it should be a holiday, but isn't. I always feel it's a bit of a holiday because my birthday falls in <laughs> June. So I'm an expert at stretching a birthday as long as possible, starting at the beginning of June when it actually falls and then sort of tripping it on for the next couple of weekends. So I'm, I'm always a fan of June. We've got birthday cakes in this house stretching right through the middle of June so birthday cake was going to continue with the Claire Marjorie friendship right through the month I think and remember last year I offered to make you a cream tea kind of afternoon tea for us and pals and then because of all the pandemic and lockdown and things it didn't seem very much fun to just deliver it to your house and not eat it with you so this year Claire I'm saying this on record I'm going to make you an afternoon tea for our pals Um, and if any of you listening out there have any ideas of what I should be baking for Claire, I'd love to know about it. I'm excited. Well, I wonder if today's story and poem are going to feel like summer. I guess we'll talk about it when it gets there, but they are definitely to this month's theme of crossroads, which we felt like is kind of a nice theme for June, both because it feels like we're starting into summer, but also it feels like the world is coming to a kind of a crossroads. We're starting to shift back into things feeling a little more normal. I mean, the story is by one of our lead readers, Lorraine Thompson, who looks after our group. It's really her group in Ullapool. Will I just get us started? Yeah, definitely. Okay, it's called Inside Her Leg. Lexi was on the sofa reading a book when she became aware of an itch on her left leg, just above the ankle. There were things she should be doing and reading wasn't one of them. It was her secret act of rebellion. She scratched the itch, wondering if it was a bite. The itch subsided and she began reading again, but when she stopped scratching to turn the page, the itch returned with a vengeance. Lexi scratched it again and continued scratching as she read. After a paragraph or two, she became aware of a warmness flowing around her fingers. She groaned, thinking that the bite was bleeding and if there was blood on the cushion, she'd have to stop reading and clean up the mess and there would be no more time for her book. When she looked down, there was no blood, but her fingers had disappeared into a hole in her leg. This struck Lexi as curious, but with her scratching fingers still soothing the itch and no mess to clean up, she decided to carry on reading. When she paused to turn the page again, she noted that her entire hand was now inside her leg, and so she fumbled single-handedly with the other and kept on reading. By the time she was on the next chapter, her arm was elbow-deep, But it was only when she was in her leg up to her shoulder and it became difficult to balance her book that she stopped to consider the situation. She thought that a leg containing an entire arm might bulge like a python when it swallows a small goat, but her leg looked perfectly normal, something that couldn't be said for the rest of her. Her body had formed a circuit and it occurred to Lexi that she must look a little like a human donut. This made her laugh out loud, but the sound startled her, and so she stopped. The sensible thing to do would be to extract her arm, but it felt nice inside her leg, so instead of pulling her arm out, she pushed her head in to take a look. 
As might be expected, the inside of her leg contained many shades of red, from vermilions and crimsons to carmines and rose pinks. More surprising were the glowing violets and cornflower blues, not to mention the streaks of light whooshing by that looked like shooting stars. When Lexi turned her head to follow one, she heard a small plop, when suddenly her whole self was inside her leg. On checking, she was relieved to see that she still had two legs attached to her body. There was movement in the distance. She walked towards it and saw that it was another person inside her leg. A young woman with her back towards Lexi. She was dancing. Lexi couldn't hear any music, but there was something familiar in the other woman's movements, and Lexi found herself walking in time to the silent beat. When she was close enough, she called, Hello. Startled, the young woman turned round. Lexi began apologizing for the intrusion, but as she looked into the other's face, the words crumbled in her mouth. She was looking at herself. Not herself now, but herself thirty years before. Her younger self stared back and then leaned in for a closer look. As she peered, a new expression came over her face. One Lexi interpreted as dawning horror. What happened to you? I mean, me? Her younger self asked. Life? Lexi replied. Oh, the other replied. I'm sorry, Lexi said, feeling that she owed herself that much. Will we stop there? Yeah, let's stop there. I should have said that this is one of the brilliant stories um, that we selected. It's kind of almost commissioned writing for this um, Unbound series. So thank you, Lorraine, for sending us this. Yeah, I mean, to begin with, I recognize that sense of almost being lost in something. It's a really beautiful image in some ways and not scary, that image of being engulfed in a story. I love that reading being a secret act of rebellion. And I, I recognize that the number of times I've been reading a book and really should be going to put on a laundry or peel the potatoes for tea or something and then just thinking one more chapter. I think we could probably both take that up a bit more even now. But yeah, definitely. And as a kid, it was the best act of rebellion. I knew I should be studying or doing something else, but I would just keep reading. But I love that. Just to go back to that, I love that image of kind of falling, you know, that idea of falling into a book where you just feel you're in that world entirely. And Lorraine's done such a beautiful job of giving us a visual image of that. That, you know, she just like her physicality is actually falling into something. I think it describes the way I feel when I read. I'm not necessarily falling into my own body, but I'm falling into something new, a different world. And I'm so distracted by it. That recognition of that falling into a book and the equating of the physicality with that process makes us accept the absurdity of the description and not be grossed out by it and not think, wait a minute, what's she talking about? This is nonsense. It's a beautiful balance of that idea of the books and their draw and that other world. And yet the draw of the real world and how we're able to ignore it when we're reading a story. And in this case, the real world, which is her hand disappearing into her leg, reflects actually what happens to you when you read. So it's a beautiful tension that she builds. And as you say, I think it's perfectly balanced. And that's why she sustains disbelief here, or she does for me, for sure. For sure. And I think for me, what just cements that is the image of the arm engulfed in the leg might look like a python. 
it would if that was what was really happening and an arm was really inside a leg, as it were. But because she then goes on to say, but it doesn't, it takes you away from the reality of the physicality a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the way the story starts and scratching an itch is beautifully done because reading does do that. It scratches an itch, doesn't it? You know, those little moments, you know, there's something that you need and you keep going back to it because it's just gnawing away at you or that's why we return or I return or don't really to books because there's something about it that I need to resolve. And if there isn't, I guess for me, that's, well, I know maybe you and I disagree about this. I don't finish books that I don't really love because I don't have enough time in my life to read all the books I do want to read. It has to have that itch sensibility. It's a bit like writing. It's got to have something that's kind of bugging me or that I need to know. Are you like that, Claire? Do you have to finish books? I, I struggle not to finish a book. I kind of have this sense of I've made a commitment to the book that I kind of feel I want to see through. I mean, there have been books I haven't finished, but even books that I don't love, I have this eternal hope that they'll get better or there'll be something about them that is redeeming or a, a sense of maybe that it's me missing it. And if I give it more time or persevere, I find that particularly true of books that people have recommended to me, people that I feel like I have a lot in common with or I'm connected to in some way. And they've said, oh, you must read this. It's really good. And I start reading it. And if, if I'm not enjoying it, I think, oh, is it me? Give it a chance. Persevere. Once I get over halfway, I'm not putting it down. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I'll definitely put it down. I've got a stack of books beside my bed, honestly, 10 of them that are halfway read through. There's not something about them that's drawing me back to them. It's the writing that draws me in or the, the way that I don't notice the writing that draws me in. And suddenly I'm stuck into the narrative in the same way that she's describing here. You know, there's no barrier between me and what's happening in the story. When you say the writing, do you mean like the way it's crafted and the word choice and the structure or... Because for me, I don't think I differentiate between that and the narrative. Oh, I think, well, I, I wouldn't normally, but I would say what puts me off a book fastest isn't the narrative. Usually it's the way it's written. So if I notice the writing and I spend a lot of time thinking, oh, that's a long sentence or it could have been said better. And to be honest, it doesn't happen very much. Books that are poorly translated. Uh, yeah, if I notice the writing, if I'm if I'm paying any mental attention to the writing, I'm not engaged in the book and then I don't want to read it. Whereas if I don't notice the writing, um, who's a good example? Ali Smith. I, I couldn't tell you how she writes. I could tell you about her stories. And the reason I can't tell you how she delivers that is because I'm not paying attention because I'm so engulfed in the story because there's almost nothing tripping me up. And do you think that's because you spend so much time examining your own writing and thinking, how do I improve that? And what what is jarring? What is tripping me? How do I make this almost softer for the reader? How do I make my own writing not noticed? Maybe, yeah, maybe. But even as a child, um, like I, I was digging out an old Ray Bradbury book that I loved as a kid, and it's not one of his most famous ones. It's called Dandelion Wine. And looking at it, because one of my teenage girls asked for it, looking at it again and trying to figure out why I loved it at the age of 13, and it's because the writing is magical, but it's telling this magical story. But a bit like Lorraine's story here, he gets the tension right, you know, and it's not scary. And you're, you don't notice what he's doing. You don't notice the words, but he's drawing you into this kind of, there's it's a story about teenagers in little forest clearings and in the woods and on rivers and things. He's so good at describing it that you're you're in it rather than paying attention to the way he's doing the tricks of the trade. And again, going back to Lorraine, I think that not only is the writing good, so good that it we believe her, but she's describing exactly what happens to me when I'm reading something that I'm engaged in. You know, that almost like I'm not noticing that I'm sinking up to my elbows in something because I'm so busy with what I'm looking at that I just don't notice, which is lovely. So yeah, I don't know. 
don't, I don't think it's about my writing. I think it's just, I wouldn't have been able to say that when I was 13, but I can say it now because I notice it when I'm, you know, when I'm choosing pieces to be in journals or when we're looking at work um, for open book or, or as you say, my own work, it's much harder to see it in your own writing, I think. But I love this description and I'm, I think Lorraine's image of falling into your own body will strangely will stick with me when I'm thinking about why writing jars and doesn't. Okay, but back to the story, what the heck is going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, just before we jump back, I, I was just going to say that I think the tension and the sort of absurdity, reality trick that Lorraine pulls that, that I absolutely loved is just when it's getting to the stage of you thinking, oh, you know, what's going on? Is, is this really happening? And then she makes a reference to the human donut. And then she just dispels that little bit of tension that's built up and that little bit of like, what's going on? Really? Her hands all the way, her arm up in her leg. And then it brings you right back to that. I feel more, I feel comfortable. She's, you know, she's not taking herself too seriously. Because you thought it was funny. It was self-deprecating too, because I wasn't sure if it's because she'd eaten too many donuts or whether you, <laughs> it's the kind of thing I would say, you know, if I was feeling like I'd had too many donuts of a, of a, a winter. Oh, I'm turning into a donut, you know, that kind of thing. So that's what I thought she meant. Yeah. I just had this image though of her arm looping round into her leg and making a circular form that looked like a donut. Which was funny. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, she takes us in, she misses out any of the gross bits, which is great because it would have put me off. And I love this description of the kind of violets and blues inside the body and, and shooting stars, you know, beautiful image. Cause actually we then have to decide what she's looking at, whether, you know, whether you decide if it's nerves or the magic that makes our bodies work, you know, you can tell I'm not a doctor, can't you? Um, you know, but I love that kind of vagueness. She, she really makes it into a beautiful thing rather than a kind of biological thing. And, you know, there's enough sort of allusions to things biological or there's enough similarities. For me, I was thinking nerve synapses firing off and veins and, you know, what would be blue? Well, it might be a vein and what would be red? Well, it might be, an, you know, but she doesn't say it. She just lets you go there with your own knowledge and your own sort of references yeah, and it makes me feel like, I mean, like we would looking at the stars at night, you know, that there's a whole lot of things up there we don't get. Yeah, it's totally. Actually, we're just allowed to appreciate it rather than have to understand it, which as a non-scientist, I mean, the scientists of you out there will object, but as a non-scientist, I appreciate being given the, the sort of ability just to look and, and wonder rather than dig in. And then she meets herself and that even, I mean, but I don't even know what's going to happen. That idea that our younger selves are contained in ourselves. It's beautiful. And that somehow I'm worried that she's going to apologize what she already has. But you know, that idea that we carry all of those people with us, you know, somehow uh, is a really profound thing that's dealt with so lightly, you know, and I just love that idea that there's somehow the younger you inside yourself. Well, maybe that you have to be accountable to, which is a worry, but also just, you know, that all that energy and ambition in my case or, or else worry, you know, is something that you can assuage at this age is a lovely thought. And I think there's a sense of it being a really positive image as well in the sense of like the idea that you can tap back into that person and sort of almost recapture elements of that younger self and you know the child within sort of idea is a really positive and lovely thought. People often say things like that that was then and this is now but the idea that you somehow are able to as you say tap back into it is a really beautiful image and that somehow we don't lose all those periods of our life you know that are gone but that actually they just become a part of us is a really gorgeous thing. And I like the little bit of humor 
<laughs> in that bit as well, <laughs> which Lexi interpreted as dawning horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's. I'm sure there's a part of my younger self that would look at me now and have a kind of horror at what it become. You know, we were talking about it last night in, in reference to one of Matt Haig's books, you know, this idea that there's all these journeys that you could have taken and that you don't take and that somehow they cut off all the possibilities in your life. And I think Lorraine, I hope what Lorraine's going to do is do the opposite and give us the permission to carry all those possibilities with us into, into what we have now. But I don't know. Shall I carry on and shall we see? Yeah, yeah, let's do. A sudden cloudburst in her mind released all the hopes and dreams and ambitions and plans she'd had back then. The contrast between what she'd wanted to do and what she'd actually done hit her hard. She slumped to her knees and sat with her face in her hands. Are you okay? Her younger self asked. Lexi felt a hand on her shoulder. She'd always been a kind soul. Maybe there's something we can do to change things, her younger self said, so that... Lexi raised her head. Her younger self looked embarrassed. So that you don't turn into me? Lexi asked. Her younger self shrugged. I have an idea. Lexi got to her feet. Go on. I don't know where it came from, but it's rooted in my head, so it must be true. Are you going to tell me? Lexi asked. No, her younger self said. That's the thing. You're going to tell me. You're going to tell me something that will change everything. But it has to be just one thing. That's the rule. So what is it? Lexi considered her life since she'd been the young woman standing before her and thought about the roads she'd taken and the alternative routes she'd missed. Just the one thing she asked. Her younger self nodded. Be careful, this is our only chance. Lexi thought, and then she thought some more, until finally she said, I've got it. Her younger self smiled. She's beautiful, Lexi thought. I was beautiful. Okay. This is it. Her younger self nodded. I'm ready. Do not go into the Blue Parrot Cafe. Do you understand? When you see that place, just walk on by. There was a sound. Sloop. An explosion of shooting stars, and Lexi was out of her leg and back on the sofa, book in hand, and with the aroma of something tasty in the air something she hadn't cooked. The room was the same, but different. It was brighter. There were flowers and a bookcase against the wall that hadn't been there before. Lexi looked down and saw that her clothes had changed. Nice clothes, colourful. And she felt different inside. She felt happy. She looked at the place on her leg where the itch had been and saw a small scar shaped like a shooting star. Lexi smiled, and as she did, she heard footsteps in the hall and a warm voice calling her to come and eat. Oh, the end of that story makes me a little tearful. Yeah, do you think it's the contrast with the start when we didn't really know much about her life, but that highlighting of the changes make us realise 
things about the start of the story that we didn't know till now. Exactly, because we didn't, yeah, we didn't know she was unhappy or she was dressed in a way that she didn't even approve of herself or you know that she didn't have a bookcase or whatever it's those tiny things and and what i like about it isn't that she's suddenly living in a palace you know in some exotic location but actually it's the tiny things you know that mark for her that her life that she is happy yeah there's something tasty in the air that she hadn't cooked i think it's really a powerful <laughs> image isn't it it is i mean i'm laughing because i think you know the idea that i know you and i both love to cook and we often do it together and as someone who loves to cook there's nothing more glorious than having someone else cook a meal for you i think especially coming out of these sort of pandemic times when that hasn't been an option you haven't been able to go and have dinner at someone else's house or you haven't been able to even go out to a restaurant i know you know, I know. that sort of what that ever repeating echo in my house of what's for dinner mum has worn a bit thin I know I did um and it makes me think last night I just gave up and said you know what I'm making the thing that your grandma used to make when your baba was away soft boiled eggs on toast for dinner they were delighted (laughs) and it made me think I should do this once a week as a treat for me as a gift yeah that idea that someone else is we know someone else is looking after her which is really gorgeous as well but it makes you wonder you know again it's that same conversation it's a bit like the sliding doors or conversation of what does one one simple thing can it change your life and I don't know I'm not I'm, I'm not always convinced about that I don't know I mean I think a lot comes from the place where you are yourself personally but I do think that fate does play a little bit in the hand that you're dealt yeah definitely but I think you tend to be a kind of person who is finds good in things or doesn't You know, and it's not as black and white as that, obviously. But I think, you know, the world isn't divided into two camps. But there definitely, there's a spectrum. You know, there's a lot of things that affect that. Things like illness or accidents or wars or, you know, all those sorts of things are things you can't um, control. But your response to those things, I think, might determine whether you're likely to be happy anyway in time, if it's a war or something else. There There are some people who appear to have anything they could possibly ever want and still, you know, never quite satisfied or happy. But I do also think that, you know, this story makes me think, you know, the addition of having someone in your life who cares about you, whether that's a relative or a child or a partner or, you know, or even just really good friends, I think is enough to make a difference to the way that you approach things. And I think it's interesting as well that one element I think of that caricature that you're drawing or that spectrum that you're describing is your tendency to be a person who looks forward to what's coming next or someone who looks back to what's happened. I definitely know people who are forward lookers who tend to just, even if something drastic or harsh or difficult has happened, have a tendency to assume that what's coming next will be better and I definitely know people who have a tendency to look back and mourn what's happened and that almost shades into them their ability to be able to move on from it and look forward. Yeah and I'm thinking about myself in that way and wondering if you know my own experience as a kid and my parents' experience of you know having to leave country and lose everything and start over they were definitely tough years um, and a lot of hard graft and a lot of tears but I wonder if there is that sense of no if you work hard enough and you have the right attitude things will get better even in the circumstances of losing people that you love and a place that you love and home um, making the most of things you know kind of getting on I don't know whether that's just in the kind of immigrant mentality because by definition every immigrant 
whether it's by choice or not, is left behind home and, you know, all the people there and things. So I don't know. But I think it's a good thing, an amazing survival skill that ends up in your ingrained in your DNA. And particularly in my family, it's not the first generation that that's happened to, you know, sort of couple of generations before that, you know, they will have been movement across the Azerbaijan border. And even on my mum's side, sort of three or four generations back, they will have been immigrants to the US. But the danger in that, I think, is back to what we so often talk about in these podcasts, you know, the lack of mindfulness about the joys that exist, because you're always working for a better day, you know, so you're always put in the graph now so that fill in the blank, whatever it is. So there's a, there, I think there is a there is a danger to being that kind of person who's always looking ahead because you forget or you miss the small joys of the moment. And part of that is just life, you know, we're busy, but part of it is you're forever trying to make things better when, you know, sometimes it would be good to stop and think, oh, actually, things are pretty good. <laughs> you know, they're, they're 80% there. And once I get to wherever I think 100% is going to be, there's going to be another 20% that I decide could be shifted. I don't know if as humans, if we're just always trying to you know, make things better. I don't know. I'm not sure about humans, but I think that's part of the legal training that we both went through is there's always that sense of driving your yourself on to more or better or quicker or doing better. And also there's a, well, law I really appreciate because there's always a sense of completion, right? So like you take on a deal or you take on a case and it resolves in one way or another. You might not like the way it resolves. It might not be to your satisfaction, but it resolves. At some point it will resolve. And we know what that resolution looks like in the sense of, you know, there's a conclusion of a case or there's a conclusion of a deal and the shares get launched and it's over. Whereas I remember, you know, when the kids were little and leaving law, finding domestic life incredibly difficult because it just never ended. And I know I'm not being flippant to say there's never an end to laundry. I mean, you can wash all the laundry in your house and a week later there's more. I think life is a bit like that laundry pile, you know, no matter how much you think I'm going to get this done or I want to get this, it, it doesn't really, that's just not the way it works. But I really like going back to the story, the way that Lexi seems so content with her lot. I was pleased, though, that we had the happy ending on this one. Yeah, me too. I don't know if after the year we've been through, I'm craving lots of happy endings and positivity, but I think there would definitely be a time when I would have wanted the story to stop at her the advice not to go into the Blue Parrot Cafe. But today I was really pleased that we went on and, and we know that she is happy and things are better. Me too. And actually, I think what's interesting is that she does such a beautiful job with the writing of it that it raises all the questions anyway. So, you know, uh, although she tells us how she sees it at the end, it doesn't stop us from thinking that question through for ourselves. What are the three points in my life where if I had taken a left rather than a right, that things would have turned out differently? It's interesting even just to think back through and try and figure out how many of them they are and and how tiny some of them are how insignificant some of them are something like walking into a cafe it's interesting isn't it oh thank you lorraine for that what a beautiful story and you can find the text of it on our website at openbookreading.com in the unbound section because it forms part of our unbound series which we now know is continuing right through to the end of this year so thank you for that beautiful story lorraine And we've got a beautiful poem to go with it. Yeah, so this is a poem called Birdhouse. It's M. Strang's poem. M. who has up until recently been a lead reader with us at the stove in Dumfries and also at HMP Dumfries. She's a poet pal and she writes with me as a part of the Twelve Collective. And it comes from her book Bird Woman, which is published by Shearsman. So I'll read it. Birdhouse. You won't believe me when I say the house turned into a bird and flew away. It was midday, 
and the loose strife was blowing all the way through the fields to the burn where I crossed over barefoot, knowing every pebble, every slippery spot. The path takes a sharp turn like a changed mind. And then the old stone steps, the nettle and the gate which opens on its own. The front door had grown in the sunlight, had stretched and snapped into a sharp, tight beak with nares like spy holes looking into the hearth of the bird. All cross beams and timbers had turned into thin, hollow bones, hooking the wings and the flesh of the thing to its dreams. Gosh, it's almost musical, that poem, isn't it? Yeah. It is set out like a poem, you know, with lineage, but um, it sounds like a little narrative piece. Well, it made me think, I know from having talked to Em, that she's really interested in breath and movement. And I really got a sense of how important breath and lyricism and movement is when you read that aloud in a way that I hadn't when I was reading it myself on the page. And they're very long sentences, so it's quite, there's not really good gaps for breath, which I think is important because it kind of stretches you along a path, kind of physically, even when you're reading it, um, which is what it's about. So it's one of those great examples where the words are doing what the subject is about, which is, you know, beautiful. And I love that image of running down through the fields and into the barn where you, where you know where you are, your feet are planted, you know every pebble and every slippery spot. You know, we're really comfortable about where we are and then suddenly the house has changed. You know, everything's changed. And I love that opening line, you won't believe me when I say. I mean, that I was already, like my mind was racing. What won't I believe? What are you going to say before it even got onto line two? It, yeah, and, and yet... Somehow a bit like Lorraine's story, the inclusion of that line makes me believe her, makes me want to believe her. Exactly. It's almost like, so since I've said you won't believe me, you should, and we do. And then, you know, there's such beautiful little lines. The path takes a sharp turn like a change. I love that. I've underlined that on my copy. (laughs) (laughs) But again, I think it's it's sort of... um, like many good poems, she gets away with that line. It's a very strong line, but on its own, if you had a poem full of lines like that, you wouldn't believe them or you wouldn't buy them. But because she's given us this beautiful image of midday and running and the, the stones and the pebbles and burn, you know, she's given us enough physicality to then not get away with, but that we're hooked in and by the suddenly, yes, we can see a path like a changed mind. And we can all see our own paths, how they shift, you know. And it's a beautiful link to the story, you know, that idea that, it's a path and we can change our minds there. And we can change what we surround ourselves with or those things can change and we can manage that change. And I don't know if it's because of my own family situation with the girls, you know, and my oldest growing older and the oldest leaving home and the two girls coming up for that in their teenage years or knowing that M has children who have just left or about to leave home. Part of this poem for me is about that, about how what you build has to by definition turn into something else you know that when inhabitants change the house changes mary oliver has a beautiful poem about that about how you you're so busy running loving the life of love that you don't notice the house falling down around you um which is a beautiful thing too but this is similar in the sense that the bird that the house that you've built turns into something else you know you run down thinking you know what you're going to find and in fact you know it's flown away the thing that you thought you'd built or you would nest in has changed and for me there's a real sense of sort of fairy story and myth 
and folklore. And I think that's common to, I've, I've read quite a few of Em's poems from, from this collection and from her other book, Horrors, that have that same sense of fairy story. There's almost something Hansel and Gretel about this, or I don't know if you know that, I think it's a Russian folk tale Baba Yaga where the house grows chicken legs and there was there was a sense of that for me in this I guess it's less fairy for me and more I know Em writes so often about the natural world because she's steeped in it you know her life is very much about the outdoor and the natural world and and so rather than it being about that I think it's putting that first rather than the structures that we might put first you know in terms of our urban lives I think at some point you know, the life, the physical life around you in the outdoors becomes the kind of basis on which you live rather than the other way around. So for me, I suspect it's it's that. It's recognizing that the natural world around us is the driver and that that somehow is what leads us rather than, you know, the house we build isn't going to hold, actually. It's going to turn into a bird. It's going to become, go back into part of the natural world it came from. I love the the, the image of the front door growing in the sunlight now it could just be warping you know and buckling but also that it grows open bigger and open and so in in fact as we grow and as we get older or decay I guess in this case there are more opportunities to go go out go and see the world and again I'm back to thinking about you know teenagers on the cusp of adulthood go out go and see the world the front door grows you know as you grow rather than holding you in it's letting you go yeah, and, and I think that for me that links in with the image of the birds that will fly off, but within it there is a hearth. So looking into the hearth of the bird, it, for me there's a sense of you can always come back, you can always come home, you can always drop back in. Yeah, and that those last lines, hooking the wings and the flesh of the thing to its dreams, you know, that the house hooks into the dreams of the bird or the other way around, that they're intertwined somehow. A bit like the rain story, you know, we're carrying what the DNA of our history if you can say that, or the, you know, or, or just our history with us in the physicality of what we carry. And somehow that hooks into your dreams, it, it, it informs your future, which is a lovely idea. And the fact that your house and the place you're from and is hooked into your dreams almost lets you follow those dreams because you know there's a road home should you choose it, should you need it. It's interesting because I was at the weekend I was having a conversation with someone who had was born in the same place and grew up in the same place and generations and generations and generations on a particular plot of land. And we were talking about what period of time if you move, we were talking about refugees in particular, or or just people who move with young children, if there's a period and he was asking me if I was in Iran when I was five, and I said, Yeah. And he said he, in his kind of non-empirical way of collecting data, he decided that wherever you were at the age of five is what you felt like was home. Whether or not you'd live the rest of your life somewhere else, where you were around the age of five was home. And he had friends who'd moved, I think from Britain somewhere else, with kids who were two and seven at the time. And the seven-year-old always felt British. And the two-year-old didn't. So it didn't have to do with having British parents. It didn't have to do with anything else except in his view, wherever it was that you were five, which I thought was interesting and also hopeful for someone like me who's moved around so much that it didn't necessarily mean you had to be able to go back there, but you just had to be able, he was saying, you just have to be able to picture it. You just have to be able to remember it. And if you can remember it, then that's your sense of home that you carry with you, which I just don't know if it's true. We could do our own empirical questionnaire. Where were you when you were five? And is that home 
is that help to you today? But I love this image that you get to, even in my own life, you know, that idea that the house, the front door, you know, somehow turned into the wings of the bird that I carry is really comforting. You know, they say that you carry trauma with you in your DNA, but I love the idea that you carry something much more settling and much more anchoring than just all the trauma that we've experienced in our lives. And it's something that you can give to the children and other people around you too. You know, it's something that you can gift in a way. And by giving it, giving them permission to take it with them. So just huge thanks to Em for that beautiful poem and for um, letting us read it and talk about it. And you'll find it on our website too. We've put it on the website for this month's Crossroads theme in June. Thanks, Em. I think that's just about us for today. A lovely, you know, story and poem. Huge thanks to both Lorraine and Em for their work. And thanks to you for listening. We've loved having you along with us we'd love for you to get in touch with you know any of the things we've chatted about your responses or your experiences or even just what you think i should bake for claire's birthday tea but you have to be quick it's only about a week away so thanks for being in our ears today we've enjoyed having you and tune in next month for the next open book unbound podcast